You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, little bitch. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Are you not entertained? I don't know who you are. Why so simple? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's the lion! Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Well, we've made it a whole 10 weeks. Go me. It looks like I've picked up a couple of new listeners or so in the last week, whether it's this month's theme or word of mouth is starting to take hold. But either way, welcome to my quarantine project. Today we're continuing the Universal Monster Mash with Frankenstein's monster and a little visit from his bride. With that, Let's take our places. It's showtime. Frightened of thunder, fearful of the dark, and yet you have written a tale that sent my blood into icy creeps. <laughs> Look at her, Shelley. Can you believe that bland and lovely brow conceived of Frankenstein? A monster created from cadavers out of rifled graves? Isn't it astonishing? I don't know why you should think so. What do you expect? Such an audience needs something stronger than a pretty little love story. So why shouldn't I write of monsters? No wonder Murray's refused to publish the book. He says his reading public would be too shocked. It will be published, I think. Then, darling, you will have much to answer for. The publishers did not see that my purpose was to write a moral lesson. The punishment that befell a mortal man who dared to emulate God. Before we get to the monster itself, we must first meet Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley, Nee Godwin, his creator. Born on August 30th, 1797, to writer-philosopher parents, Mary's mother passed away a mere month after her birth. Her father managed to provide a thorough education for Mary, despite money being tight most of the time. He also encouraged her to follow his own anarchist views. Mary grew up, well, turned 16, and began a romance with Percy Shelley, one of her father's married followers. The two ran off together to France, but returned to England after the death of their child and the suicide of Percy's first wife. Mary and Percy married in 1816. The summer after they married, the newlyweds, as well as poet Lord Byron, writer John William Polidori, and Shelley's stepsister Claire Claremont vacationed in Geneva, Switzerland. Trapped inside for several dark and stormy nights, the group would keep themselves entertained by telling ghost stories, leading Lord Byron to challenge each of them to write a horror story of their own. Though first stricken with writer's block, one evening, during a discussion on the nature of life, Mary came up with the idea to write her story about a reanimated corpse. That night, she dreamed of a scientist who brings a creature to life in an experiment. Mary began writing what she thought would be only a short story, but after encouragement from her husband, Mary's short story became Frankenstein, or the modern Prometheus. Originally published in 1818 anonymously, because sexism, her name was added in editions that followed in 1823 and 1831. 
Minor changes were made between these additions, for example, the relationship between Victor and his wife. In the first edition, they were cousins, but in the 1823 version, she became his stepsister. Mary and Percy moved to Italy in the 1820s, where the Shelleys would have their only surviving child, Percy Florence Shelley. Percy Sr. died in 1822 in a sailing accident, and Mary returned to England to become a full-time author. There, she also maintained her mother's astute feminism, attempting to support women whom the society of the day disapproved of. Unfortunately, Mary's final years were laden with illness. She had terrible migraines and fits of paralysis that prevented her from writing. On February 1, 1851, Shelley passed away as a result of what her physician believed was a brain tumor. During her life, she published six novels and left one unfinished manuscript behind. Her first novel, though, the one conjured on those dark and stormy nights, would be her most popular and by far the most enduring. I haven't read Frankenstein since I was a youngin, so the following synopsis once more comes from my old friend and yours, Spark Notes, with some further abridgment by yours truly. It's time for another spooky story. In a series of letters, the captain of a ship bound for the North Pole recounts to his sister back in England the progress of his dangerous mission. Successful early on, the mission is soon interrupted by seas full of impassable ice. Trapped, the captain encounters Victor Frankenstein, who has been traveling via dog sled across the ice and is weakened by the cold. The captain takes him aboard ship, helps nurse him back to health, and hears the fantastical tale of the monster that Frankenstein created. Victor first describes his early life in Geneva, at the end of a blissful childhood spent in the company of Elizabeth, his cousin or adopted sister, depending on the edition of the novel, and friend Henry Clerval. Victor enters the University of Ingolstadt to study natural philosophy and chemistry. There, he is consumed by the desire to discover the secret of life and, after several years of research, becomes convinced that he has found it. Armed with this knowledge, Victor spends months feverishly fashioning a creature out of old body parts. One climactic night, in the secrecy of his apartment, he brings his creation to life. With one look at the monstrosity that he has created, he is horrified. After a fitful night of sleep, interrupted by the specter of the monster looming over him, he runs into the streets, abandoning his monster. Sickened by his horrific deed, Victor prepares to return to Geneva to his family. Just before departure, however, he receives a letter from his father informing him that his youngest brother William has been murdered. Grief-stricken, Victor hurries home. While passing through the woods where William was strangled, he catches sight of his monster and becomes convinced that the monster is his brother's murderer. Arriving in Geneva, Victor finds that Justine Moritz, a kind, gentle girl who had been adopted by the Frankenstein household has been accused. She is tried, condemned, and executed, despite her assertions of innocence. Victor grows despondent, guilty with the knowledge that the monster he has created bears responsibility for the death of two innocent loved ones. Hoping to ease his grief, 
Victor takes a vacation to the mountains. While he is alone one day, crossing an enormous glacier, the monster approaches him. The monster admits to the murder of William, but begs for understanding. He begs Victor to create a mate for him, a monster equally grotesque to serve as his sole companion. Victor refuses at first, horrified by the prospect of creating a second monster. The monster is eloquent and persuasive, however, and he eventually convinces Victor. Victor heads for England, accompanied by Harry, to gather information for the creation of a female monster. Victor eventually secludes himself on a desolate island and works at repeating his first success. One night, struck by doubts about the morality of his actions, Victor glances out the window to see the monster glaring in at him with a frightening smile. Horrified by the possible consequences of his work, Victor destroys his new creation. The monster, enraged, vows revenge, swearing that he will visit Victor on his wedding night. Later that evening, Victor takes a boat out onto the lake and dumps the remains of his second creature into the water. The wind picks up and prevents him from returning to the island. In the morning, he finds himself ashore near an unknown town. Upon landing, he is arrested and informed that he will be tried for a murder discovered the previous night. Victor denies any wrongdoing, and when shown the body, he is shocked to behold his friend Henry with the mark of the monster's fingers on his neck. Victor falls ill, raving and feverish, and is kept in prison until his recovery, after which he is acquitted of the crime. Shortly after returning to Geneva with his father, Victor marries Elizabeth. Heeding the monster's warning, he sends Elizabeth away, instructing her to wait for him. While Victor awaits the monster, he hears Elizabeth scream and realizes that the monster had been hinting at killing his new bride, not him. Victor vows to devote the rest of his life to finding the monster and exacting his revenge. Victor eventually tracks the monster ever northward into the ice. In a dog sled chase, Victor almost catches up with the monster, but the sea beneath them swells and the ice breaks, leaving an unbridgeable gap between them. It's at this point that the captain encounters Victor, and the narrative catches up to the beginning of the novel. The captain tells the remainder of the story in another series of letters to his sister. Victor, already ill when the two men meet, worsens and dies. When the captain returns several days later, he is startled to see the monster weeping over Victor. The monster tells him of his immense solitude, suffering, hatred, and remorse. He asserts that now that his creator has died, he too can end his suffering. The monster then departs to the northernmost ice to die. So now that you know the original story, let's get into what the movies did. The first film adaptation of Frankenstein was made by Edison Studios in 1910. The picture was described as, quote, a liberal adaptation of Mrs. Shelley's famous story. Unsurprising, as the film was only 16 minutes long, shot in three days, and omitted all horror elements of the novel. 
If you want to see what I'm talking about, the film is available at the link in the show notes. It's interesting, even considering the era in which it came from. There were two additional adaptations as well, Life Without a Soul, a lost 1915 silent film, as well as an Italian adaptation in 1921. Play adaptations of Frankenstein were performed as far back as 1823. It would be the 1927 production penned by Peggy Webling and produced by Hamilton Dean that would be, in addition to the book, the main inspiration for Universal's eventual monster. After the success of Dracula, head of production at Universal Pictures, Carl Emley Jr., announced the immediate production of further horror pictures, the next of which being Frankenstein. Bela Lugosi, riding high on the success of Dracula, was originally tapped to play the monster, but after a series of disastrous makeup tests, he left the film, though this would not be his last tango with the monster. The version of the character that Lugosi tested for was quite different than the one that was ultimately on screen, as was the early version of the Frankenstein script. According to William Gregory's 1981 book, It's Alive, the classic cinema saga of Frankenstein, Robert Flory, the original director, was inspired by the cabinet of Dr. Caligari and planned to portray the monster as a mindless killing machine. Quite a detraction from the source material, as the monster was really quite eloquent. Lugosi, in the original monster makeup, was described as looking more like the monster from the film The Golem than the monster we eventually got. Unhappy with what they were getting, the Lemleys removed Robert Flory from the project and replaced him with relative newcomer James Whale. Whale, who I will talk about in more detail a little bit later in the episode, had been handpicked by the Lemleys and imported to Hollywood. Whale was given relative free reign as to what project he would direct and was immediately attracted to Frankenstein. He rewrote the script, restoring the humanity to the monster and overall yielding a script much closer to the source material. The way the monster is physically described in Shelley's source material is actually quite ambiguous. Shelley wanted the reader to create their own monster. This allowed the filmmakers relative freedom to conjure up their own interpretation. Shelley also didn't describe exactly how the monster was brought to life for the same reason. Was it black magic? Science? Let your imagination run wild. The Hollywood adaptation of the novel is where we get the image of the laboratory, as well as the most well-known look of the monster, which was ultimately based on a sketch by Whale. To play the monster, James Whale cast Boris Karloff, a British-born actor who was already a veteran of the stage and screen before playing the role that turned him into an icon of the horror genre. Can you tell us, in fact, how you did get the job? Yes, I think I can. First, I'd like to salute the monster, who really is the best friend I ever had. He changed the whole course of my life, because up to that time, I was just a struggling, unknown actor. And no reason why that shouldn't go on. Well, it happened. I was working the film at Universal, and I was in the commissary for lunch. And James Whale, you know, the journey's end man, he was to direct first Frankenstein and he called me over to his table to have a cup of coffee with him after lunch and said he'd like to make a test of the monster and Frankenstein for me. I was delighted at the fault of another job but I must say my feelings were a little bit hurt because I had on my best suit and rather, uh, I thought, rather a saucy straight makeup and all he could think of was the monster. However, the job was a job. You said that that was the beginning of everything for you. Yes, it was indeed. 
because uh, I was under contract to Universal and the film was a great success and from, I, in effect, I haven't stopped working since. The man who would be Boris Karloff was born William Henry Pratt on November 23, 1887. The young Englishman suffered from a stutter and a lisp, as well as being bow-legged. While he would eventually get the stutter under control, the lisp would be present in many films throughout his career. Pratt began acting in Canada on the stage, where he adopted his stage name Boris Karloff. The newly minted Karloff made his way to Hollywood in the late 1910s, where he would find sporadic work, eventually receiving name recognition after the Howard Hawks prison drama, The Criminal Code, in 1931. Whale chose him personally for the role, as you heard in the anecdote at the break. To design the laboratory, Universal sourced soon-to-be-top-set designer and electrician Kenneth Strickfadden to design the electrical effects that were used in the creation scene. They were so successful that such effects came to be considered an essential part of every subsequent Universal film involving Frankenstein's monster and were recycled in laboratory sets until the 1970s. Accordingly, the equipment used to produce them has come to be referred to in fan circles as Strickfadden's. Strickfadden also doubled for Karloff during the creation scene as Karloff was afraid of the sparks. During the production of Frankenstein, Karloff was covered in makeup that took over three hours to put on, ultimately designed by Jack Pierce, one of the pioneers of movie makeup. Coupled with a cumbersome costume, each four-inch platform shoe Karloff had to wear weighed 11 pounds. All of this did not make an ideal scenario for the August shoot. In the climactic scene of the film, Karloff had to carry the actor that played Dr. Frankenstein up the stairs of the windmill so many times that he injured his back and required three surgeries to fix it. Despite this, Karloff would suffer some level of discomfort from the injury for the rest of his life. When the film ultimately released, Carl Lemley added to the start of the film a warning for Great Depression-era audiences whom he feared would be too terrified of what they were about to watch if not pre-warned. The film opened to great financial success. Critically, Frankenstein has the distinction of being one of only a few films that holds 100% approval on Rotten Tomatoes. Frankenstein's monster had become an icon of cinema practically overnight. How do you do? Mr. Carl Lemley feels it would be a little unkind to present this picture without just a word of friendly warning. We are about to unfold the story of Frankenstein, a man of science who sought to create a man after his own image without reckoning upon God. It is one of the strangest tales ever told. It deals with the two great mysteries of creation, life and death. I think it will thrill you. It may shock you. It might even horrify you. So if any of you feel that you do not care to subject your nerves to such a strain, now is your chance to... Uh, well, we've warned you. 
And now I wanted to take a little intermission from the monsters to talk about a man, James Whale. I added this section in the day before I recorded this because the more I learned about James Whale, the more I wanted to learn about him and his life. And I think you might too. James Whale was born into a poor English family. As a young boy, he was always quite artistic. But Whale would discover his love of drama, believe it or not, while imprisoned by the Germans during World War I. After the war, he became an actor, set designer, and director. His film directorial debut, Journey's End, in 1930, became his ticket to Hollywood. Frankenstein was the second film Whale directed for Universal, and the one that ensured his legacy. Two years and three films for Universal later, Whale directed The Invisible Man, which we're talking about next week, and then Bride of Frankenstein in 1935, which we'll talk about in a minute. Whale worked with Universal for several years, his last film with the studio under the Lemley family being Showboat in 1936, not to be confused with the remake in 1951. Yes, the man who directed Frankenstein also directed the musical Showboat. When Universal went bankrupt and was sold off, the new owners let Whale make a sequel to All Quiet on the Western Front called The Road Back in 1937, which dealt with the German side of World War I. The studio warped the film from Whale's vision, hiring another director to shoot additional scenes amidst the growing fear of the tensions in Europe. Amplified by the Nazi Germany consul in Los Angeles, Yes, that was a thing, whom threatened repercussions if the film was released. The studio's changes to what he had hoped would be his masterpiece infuriated Whale, and the film was a commercial and critical flop. Whale was blamed for the film's failure. Whale spent the next years of his directorial career making B-movies for Universal. He retired in 1941, frustrated with the material he was being given. He spent his retirement painting directing theater, and the occasional film project here or there. Whale was homosexual and lived as an out gay man in the 1920s and 30s Hollywood, something pretty much unheard of at the time. He even lived with his partner, producer David Lewis, for many years before Whale tried to move a younger man into their home. David moved out, but the two remained close. When David installed a pool in his new home, Whale had one installed in his backyard, even though he didn't swim, but he was known for throwing all-male swimming parties. In spring of 1956, Whale suffered a small stroke, followed by a larger stroke, the latter of which hospitalized him. He was also treated for depression and given electroshock treatments. Now under a non-male, non-living nurse, per his new partner's request, Whale in his later years suffered from mood swings as his mental faculties declined. About a year after his stroke, on May 29, 1957, Whale died by suicide by drowning in his pool. David Lewis hid Whale's suicide note for decades, leading to Whale's death being called an accident when it initially happened. In the letter, he cited the constant pain he lived in as the reason for his death, but wanted his family and friends to know that he lived a good life. The 1998 film Gods and Monsters, starring Ian McKellen and Brendan Fraser, is based on Whale's final days. I just watched it for the first time this week, and I highly recommend it if you've never seen it. You can find where you can stream it in the show notes of this episode. Now, back to more what you came for. She's alive! Alive! 
Bride of Frankenstein. The sequel to Frankenstein came four years later with Bride of Frankenstein. Once again directed by Whale, whom initially didn't want to direct the sequel as he felt he had nothing left to say on the matter of the monster, Whale agreed to direct the film as leverage for him getting to direct One More River, a passion project of his at the time, once Bride was wrapped. Originally called The New Adventures of Frankenstein, The Monster Lives, the treatment written by Robert Flory was rejected by the studio. Tom Reed wrote the next one, entitled The Return of Frankenstein, which the studio liked, and once the script was written, the Hayes office approved. Whale hated that script, saying it, quote, stinks to high heaven. Several other writers took cracks at the script, all of which were unsatisfactory to the director. The resulting script was a hodgepodge of all the writers' works, combined by playwright William J. Holbutt and author Edmund Pearson. The film that would be renamed Bride of Frankenstein was based on the subplot of the book in which the monster asks for a mate and featured a prologue that dramatized how the book Frankenstein came to be. The major difference in the film version than the book, of course, is that the bride never lives in the book. A major change between the first film and the second was the decision to have the monster speak, something Karloff was against despite the monster being quite articulate in the book. Whale and the studio psychiatrist worked together to come up with a list of 44 words the creature would likely be able to say, which was compiled by looking at test papers of children that were employed by the studio. The actress whom played the bride, Elsa Lanchester, also played Mary Shelley in the prologue. During the credits, her name is credited for the Mary Shelley part, but when it came to her role as the bride, she was credited merely as question mark, as Karloff had been in Frankenstein. Bride of Frankenstein was also profitable for Universal and modestly praised by critics, whom said it was good for what it was. The UK, like the US, had a board of censorship, the former of which, starting in 1935, required international horror films to be censored if they did not meet their guidelines. It all came to a head with 1935's The Raven, a universal picture starring Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff. The British censors did not like many of the scenes within the film, but the film, despite popular legend, was never completely banned from the country. However, news spread throughout Hollywood that the Raven had caused outrage overseas, signaling an end to the horror genre as a whole. This, coupled with the new management at Universal, led to the shelving of all horror films for the time being. A small independent theater in Los Angeles, in an attempt to stave off bankruptcy, started a run of three horror films back-to-back, Dracula, Frankenstein, and depending on sources, either RKO's King Kong or Universal's The Mummy in 1938. 
audiences packed the house of the struggling Regina Theater, prompting Universal to re-release Dracula and Frankenstein as a double feature in major theaters across America. And just like that, Universal was back in the horror game. Their first move was to make a sequel to Bride of Frankenstein, which was called Son of Frankenstein, which came out in 1939. Roland V. Lee, the director, took the mantle over from James Whale. Bela Lugosi played the role of Igor. Igor was renamed Fritz from the first film, a character not present in the book, but one that has become synonymous with the Frankenstein lore. Son of Frankenstein was rushed into production, with Karloff back as the monster. Due to its hasty schedule, the film's script was a bit of a mess and needed to be rewritten several times, causing the film to go behind schedule and over budget. Despite all the issues, the film was a massive hit, the monsters were officially back, but Karloff was done being one. After seven years of playing Frankenstein's monster, Boris Karloff had had enough. Fearing he was becoming the butt of jokes regarding his betrayal, Karloff would don the makeup for the monster one more time during a celebrity baseball game in 1940 before heading for the Great White Way back to theater. Karloff spent many years on Broadway, originating the role of Jonathan Brewster in Arsenic and Old Lace. After returning to film a few years later, Karloff made several horror films for RKO, but none had the appeal or popularity that Frankenstein had. After Son of Frankenstein came a string of B-level Frankenstein films from Universal, starting with The Ghost of Frankenstein in 1942, with Lon Chaney Jr. taking over for Karloff. Lugosi, once again, portrayed Igor. The film culminates in Igor swapping brains with the monster in one of the film's final scenes. Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman came out in 1943, a direct sequel to two of Universal's horror films, the Wolfman, and the Ghost of Frankenstein. After the events in the prior Frankenstein film, Bela Lugosi now portrayed the monster. This would be the last time Frankenstein played a major role in a classic Universal monster film, though he would appear several more times. Decades before audiences got their cinematic superverses, they had the literal monster mashes with the House of films. House of Frankenstein featured the monster, Dracula, the Wolfman, the Hunchback, and Karloff returning to Universal's monster movies with the role of the Mad Doctor Neiman. Glenn Strange took over for Lugosi as the monster and would play the character several times. The film was a mild hit and inspired another entry in the House of series, House of Dracula. Additionally, Frankenstein, the Wolfman, and Dracula all made an appearance in Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein, but despite the title, the character was merely a supporting character. Every Who down in Whoville liked Christmas a lot, but the Grinch, who lived just north of Whoville, did not. The Grinch hated Christmas the whole Christmas season. Now, oh, please don't ask why. No one quite knows the reason. It could be perhaps that his shoes were too tight. It could be his head wasn't screwed on just right. But I think that the most likely reason of all may have been that his heart was two sizes too small. Karloff found his career in decline in the late 1940s, after World War II, when horror movies were on the decline. 
No real surprise as to why those fell out of vogue at that particular time. He would take roles in film noirs and even the radio, returning to the periodic horror film as the years went on, including another Frankenstein film, Frankenstein 1970 in 1958, produced by Aubrey Skank Productions. The film featured Karloff as Dr. Frankenstein, whom had been horribly disfigured by the Nazis for not helping them during the war. Frankenstein eventually makes his monster using an atomic reactor. Karloff's last career boost would be as another green monster. As you heard at the break, in 1966, Karloff provided the voice of the Grinch in the television adaptation of How the Grinch Stole Christmas. The role earned Karloff an Emmy. Karloff continued to work even as emphysema collapsed all but one half of one lung, requiring him to take hits of oxygen in between takes. Karloff would eventually pass away from pneumonia on February 2nd, 1969. Good! What is it? What's the matter? Quick, give him the... Quick, give him the... What? Give him the what? Three syllables. First syllable sounds like... Head! Uh, sounds like head! Bed! Uh, said! Said! Said. Said. Second syllable, little word, uh, this, that, the. Uh, oh, oh. Said, uh. Said, uh. Dirty word, he said a dirty word. Oh, sounds oh, like, uh, to give. Said, give. said, uh, give. Give him a said a give. Oh, tip, tip, said a tip. On the nosy. Oh. Frankenstein has continued to be one of, if not the, most popular monster of the classic Universal Monster universe and has appeared either as the main monster or a side character like in Monster Squad in 87 or Van Helsing in 2004 in dozens upon dozens of films. Fictionalized films of Mary Shelley writing the book exist as well. Frankly, no pun intended, the history surrounding Frankenstein and, of course, Mary Shelley's mysterious life has enough stories and content to fill an entire month worth of episodes. Since this episode is already running super long, I picked a couple of highlights of some Frankenstein adaptations over the years. Hammer Films, the year before they produced the first Dracula film, took a run at Frankenstein with Christopher Lee playing the monster in the first film, The Curse of Frankenstein, in 1957. Peter Cushing, whom would go on to play Van Helsing to Lee's Dracula in Hammer's Dracula films, played Victor Frankenstein in all but one of the seven Frankenstein films Hammer eventually released. These films are pretty different from the book, save the names, and the monster is violent and murderous. The screenwriter, Jimmy Sangster, claimed to have never seen the Universal films, claiming he went off his impressions of the novel alone. There have also been parodies like Mel Brooks's film Young Frankenstein in 1974 and the Rocky Horror Picture Show in 1975. There's even a family movie called Frankenweenie from 1984 in which a boy reanimates his dog. 
There's a 1990 film called Frankenhooker. I'm not going down that road, no. That's a very different show than this one. A play adaptation directed by Danny Boyle with Benedict Cumberbatch and Johnny Lee Miller with the two leads taking turns playing monster and creator. It was recorded for National Theatre Live and occasionally pops up in theaters when theaters are open, of course. In the past six years alone, there have been four separate adaptations of Shelley's novel two of which were major Hollywood productions, I, Frankenstein in 2014 and Victor Frankenstein in 2015. A Bride of Frankenstein reboot has been planned for the future starring Elizabeth Banks. Frankenstein has been resurrected scores of times since he first graced the screen nearly 90 years ago. Shelley's monster, one of the most iconic monsters of all time, continues to serve as an allegory between God, man, and monster. He'll eat nutritious, high protein, and swallow raw eggs. Try to build up his shoulders, his chest, arms, and legs. Such an effort, if he only knew of my plan. In just seven days, I can make you a man. He'll do press-ups and chin-ups, do the snatch, clean and jerk. He thinks dynamic tension must be hard work. Such strenuous living, I just don't understand. When it's just seven days, oh, baby, I can make you a man. And that's going to do it for this week. As always, there will be corresponding images posted on social media and some recommended viewing in the show notes. Availability of where to stream these films is based on the American market. International availability may vary. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media on Twitter at Tinsel underscore Factory, Instagram at Tinsel Factory Pod, on Facebook at The Tinsel Factory, or email me at TinselFactoryPod at gmail.com. Did I get something wrong? Email me and let me know and I'll correct it on a future episode. I'm also relying on word of mouth to grow this podcast for the time being. So if you like what you heard, please subscribe wherever you are listening. Give the podcast a five-star review if you can and share it with your friends. Next week, it's our first double feature, The Mummy and the Invisible Man. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, that's a wrap. For my monster from his slab began to rise And suddenly, to my surprise He did the, mash. He did the monster mash The monster mash